Hello, this is Mary. And this is Chandler. And you're listening to The Miss Fisher Files. Welcome back to The Miss Fisher Files. We are in season two, which is hard to believe. I know. I can't believe we already did all of season one. I'm... It's kind of a blur. I know. It's a blur, and I'm kind of sad that like a third of the way is already done. Um, I know. But so it's a new season. We are moving up in the world. Mm-hmm. We actually are in a recording studio oh, yeah. at this moment. It's kind of a big deal. We're, and we're not in no dining room today, folks. Nope. Nope. <laughs> no dining room table. No. Real recording studio. And we have a wonderful producer, Doug Mackey. Who is also behind the wonderful music at the beginning of the podcast. That's right. That theme you heard ahead of time and at the end, that was written and recorded and produced by Doug. So thank you, Doug. Yay, Doug. He's doing a little dance in the other room. (laughs) (laughs) So new season, new ways to spice it up. Chandler and I have proven that we can talk ad nauseum Forever. Forever, just the two of us. Mm -hmm. But we thought that we would add a third voice to this episode. Yes. So we are thrilled to introduce our guest, the wonderful Jojo Stiletto. Hi. I'm so excited to be talking at length with new friends (laughs) about my current obsession. We are very excited to share this obsession with you. And we'll find lots to talk about. And we were super happy to find out that Jojo is... Also a local gal. She lives in Seattle, so she's just down the road from us. So it was like finding this amazing kindred spirit just down the road. And we kind of created our own little friny sphere. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it'll grow. I'm yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I would say that I discovered your podcast because I was doing research for a project and uh, was looking for other people uh, discussing it uh, just to sort of inform what I was working on. And I listened to a half hour of this podcast and wrote you immediately to tell you, <laughs> please do not stop. <laughs> Your email made my week at least possibly my month. So. Oh, good, good. Well, yes. you, finding your podcast made my, <laughs> at least my day. Okay. <laughs> so um, let's dive let's, in. Okay, we'll dive in. We'll okay. do our... Well, so now the episode here is called, and I actually wrote it down this time. You'll be oh, proud good. of me. Okay. Murder Most Scandalous. I almost never write down the, the episode title. And maybe we should talk about a little recap. Can you kick us off there, Mary? So, yes. Um, this has to do with the murder of a woman who, her name is Lavinia. Mm-hmm. She was working at the Imperial Club. Mm-hmm. And um, she saw murdered in the apartment of... Chief Commissioner Sanderson, who has been conducting all kinds of raids in Melbourne um, in the houses of ill repute. So we've already got kind of a political scandal. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we delve in, oh, we get into some fun stuff. We get to meet Jack's ex-wife, mm-hmm. who yes. happens to be Commissioner Sanderson's daughter. Yes. <laughs> and uh, we get to go into the Imperial Club and see all of that fun. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Lots to talk about there. Yes. Um, and we else? meet Dot's sister. Oh, yeah. Pretty early on, actually. Um, Lola. Yeah, so Lola. we have some shocking family connections on both sides here in this episode. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> so um, I my costume notes for this episode are like a mile long because I, this may be a record. We may have more costume changes in this episode than any other. It's 
ridiculous, and I'm so happy about it. (laughs) Um, And it starts off with a bang with the victim. She is in this fabulous green beaded dress with kind of a feather pattern on it. It's kind of in this bottle green, which is one of my favorite colors ever. And it's that classic flapper look. And we're going to see that over and over and over again in this episode, especially at the girls at the Imperial Club. They're kind of Mm -hmm. all wearing these classic flapper outfits. So if, if you're into 1920s flapper gear, this is your episode. Um, and I think that, that this whole setup is really interesting because we, we see this murder victim and she's in this very small room, this kind of closed room murder. And I think it's a really inventive murder. I think mm-hmm. we've talked yes. about this before. Mm-hmm. We usually don't care at all about the murder. I, I honestly still don't, I, but yes, yeah. I agree. Yeah, <laughs> but it's a clever one it in is, this yeah. one. You know, we've got the magnet on the iron mm-hmm. lock on the door. and The cold open on that is just so interesting to me. Um, it, it's a really interesting riddle mm. of, like, the door is locked, you can't get in. There's a woman who is both strangled and blood is seeping out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a man who's passed out and two glasses of port or something. And it's just like, that's, <laughs> to me, it's like, ooh, what... What's this riddle? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It turns out the riddle is actually really complicated. Yeah. I'd say overly so, but, uh, you know. I think I've watched yeah. it ten times, and this last watch was the first time I was like, oh, that's what happened. <laughs> I finally actually figured out who killed Lavinia just this last time, and it's probably the 30th time I've watched it, or maybe more. Yeah, they kind, of, they kind of breeze past that, really. They do. Well, and, I mean, as I say every time, I don't care. Yeah. I don't care. I'm not here for the mystery, yeah. honestly. But um, what I'm here for is the Franny's entrance. Oh, <laughs> yes. The slow pan up her body standing on the car and the lovely frock that she is in. Oh, yeah. And those gold shoes for the, the flamenco. She's doing a paso doble with her. Oh, you're talking about the, the, oh, the yes. actually when she's. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What I, I usually don't count the. Yeah, but when she appears I, on the crime scene outfit. No, you're yeah, talking about no, I'm thinking about the very yeah the flamenco, flamenco opening, and she's got those gold flamenco shoes on, and she's doing that paso doble with her with her yummy instructor. Can I just point out why is Mac there? I love Mac. I always always want to see more Probably Mac. Probably to but gawk at Friday in a sexy flamenco dress. I, I mean, wouldn't you? I, I would. Just, I feel kind of bad. She has to sit. Well, there. she's her bestie, and she like I was like. This is what I would do if I was having a dance <laughs> class at my house. She seemed to be having a I good time. I would invite my friend She's over got her legs over the armchair. Yeah. She's clapping along. I would That's, also say Max outfits in this oh, outfit. Oh, I, I love this yeah. episode are so divine. The dapper butch look oh, is yeah. dialed up super nice. Now, we've seen this suit that she's wearing before, that kind of wool plaid suit. We, we saw in the episode with the factory workers where Dot goes oh. undercover. She wears that same suit and ascot. Um, you were a combination. <laughs> she is, especially anything regarding menswear. Yes, all. And I feel like Mac fits in with the menswear because yes, yes. you know, right? And she's wearing what, what? What I don't remember seeing, and maybe there just wasn't a shot of it, but she's wearing these beautiful fawn-colored saddle shoes, and I just love them. There's <laughs> just something about the way that she is posed in the parlor mm-hmm. with the art direction and the color scheme to me that was just show. Uh, alluring. Like, I yeah. was, I had special feelings for Mac sitting there watching <laughs> oh, yeah. her friends dance. It was like a painting of, done by, like, the lesbian literati of the age. <laughs> like, it just was <laughs> such a good little moment. Oh. I actually felt like it was awkward. Which really? I, yeah, I have a very different perspective on it. I felt kind of bad that Mac had to witness the hetero shenanigans that were going on. <laughs> 
And I don't know. I mean, it was fun. It was very fun. And she looked fantastic. Yeah, it's too bad Mac couldn't come for the fan dance. Yes. I feel like she would have been better in other scenes or just more scenes. If I were her, that would be where I'd pick Hmm. to go. Noted. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, One of my favorite outfits is in this episode. And I have a list of outfits. And it's actually the very final outfit. Oh, if you guys oh, want oh to. the red velvet the red cape. cape. I yes. just screamed at the television. <laughs> Every time I watch it, it is so not even my personal style, but that that uh, that red velvet capelet or whatever, and the way that it's cut and the and fa- it kind of hooks back around yes. her waist in a really interesting and unusual yes. way. Yeah. yeah, and the dialogue. I can just. I can just. Tell that the costumer is having the best fun when she gets the <laughs> scripts and is like, oh, they're talking about bullfighting. Yeah. I'll and put what her color in that is red the cape? velvet cape? Blood red. Yes. Of course it's blood red. It is very deep red. It's really it's a good gorgeous. thing that Franny. It's that, a really good blue red. Yeah. It's so good that Franny looks good in red because, mm-hmm. yeah, heaven help us all if she were a redhead or something and couldn't wear that, that color. Oh, yeah. That would be but sad. I'd still, I'm a redhead. I'd still wear that. Go I'd, you. I would still wear Rock that. it. She Rocket. never wears the cape again, but she yeah, doesn't need right. to because it's so fitting in this it's, one and scene. And it's such a little a little snickering hint at, to that dialogue mm-hmm. that doesn't really fit in, I think, in anywhere else right. in the series. Yeah. Uh, it's a fun little joke. Yeah, uh, you're waving think, a red rag, Miss Fisher, but I'm no longer in that ring. In that ring. She is. She's <laughs> wearing the most beautiful red rag. <gasps> I know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Please know we're all fanning ourselves. The vapors. Yeah. Well, there's so few uh, episodes. Like I uh, often uh, have feelings about her outfits, but there's very few outfits which I actually cause me to have to sometimes just stop the show and mm. walk away. And then come back. <laughs> and have that's a little moment. One of the two outfits that uh, cause seizures in my brain. <laughs> What's so. the other one? Out of curiosity, yeah. it is. Oh, it's the um, the episode about the silent movies, and it's when she invites oh, yeah. all the Hollywood mm. folks to her house and has on uh, it's a gold gold dress, and the way that it's mm. cut in the back, how it's draped, um, uh, yeah, definitely also causes fits. <laughs> My uh, ex husband uh, was watching it with me, and he thought I was angry at the show because I started screaming at the TV, <laughs> stopped, walked out of the room, and then came back. <laughs> And perhaps it is my burlesque background that uh, causes me to have such vocal reactions when I'm watching it. <laughs> Woo! I've, I've never yelled at the screen. Not ever. Nope. Not. <laughs> I, I'm pleading the fifth over here. Mm. <laughs> Do they have the fifth in Australia? They must have something similar. Um, I would imagine. Now, you mentioned your favorite outfit in this. I also, um, my least favorite outfit of hers is in this episode. Oh. And it makes several appearances throughout the series, but so maybe that's why it's my least favorite. But it's that that dark blue, very sheer coat that has that weird embroidered kind of amoeba yep. slash mm. Keith Herring <laughs> pattern on it. And it's very period and it's very elegant, but I can't stand mm. it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's the one that she wears to the crime scene, right? Yeah. Yes, right off the bat. Yeah. yeah. And she also, what she wears later in the episode is a scarf that matches. It's got that same amoeba pattern just at the very bottom yep. of the scarf. It's kind of hand-stitched on there. And it must have been incredibly laborious to make that coat if it is hand-stitched like it appears to be. But I think it is hideous. <laughs> <laughs> I I agree. Um, it makes me feel like something that a modern... 
um, middle-aged, uh, very boring woman would buy to wear to, like, an auction um, <laughs> yeah. or some sort of society event. And it makes me a little sad. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's very middle-aged matronly, and that's yeah. so not her. But it is, uh, like, it's the, you know... The fabrics and oh, the embroidery oh, are lovely, um, but I I prefer other versions. I prefer like I call it the the slutty cat burglar look, <laughs> which is when she sort of wears her beret yes. and oh, heels yeah. to to yep. the climb up drain pipe, to climb up a building with a rappling hook. <laughs> we refer to the beret as the break and enter beret. Oh yes. yes. Oh yeah. And, of course, she's got a grappling hook, and she uses it in this episode because, as we've discussed before, she is Batman. She is. Basically. But she did a lot of those, um, a lot of the climbing herself, as oh. Davis did. Yeah. Well, she has yeah. got some mean guns. Yeah. Like, she really Oh, does. yeah. Oh. And also in this episode, we learn that she has some killer abs, too. You'd, yes. You would have to. Oh, and, and yeah, we, get to, we do get to see them. Yes, we do. see her. She had twins. Essie oh, Davis had twins, yeah. and yet, and that Cleopatra episode, that Cleopatra costume from the last season, I yeah, yeah, it's like how how did that woman have twins? I don't know. I don't know. I haven't had children possible. at all, and I will never <laughs> ever look like that. Thank you. <laughs> um, now, the, we, one of my favorite outfits, though, which is actually a, I don't know, I feel like it's similar in style to that amoeba coat, but um, but I think is beautiful is that she wears this kind of polka dot blouse with, paired yes. with a black fur stole and a bottle green mm-hmm. satin lining that is just to die for. And it's all, it, she's all blinked out. She's in a big old hat and she's got this <laughs> enormous, enormous paste emerald around her neck. Yes. And I mean, it's just ridiculous. And it. Is amazing. Is that the kind of sheer black shirt with like uh, sort of beige circles? Yes, that are beige and white of, yeah. that are kind of overlapping. And it's got like a cowl neck. I and think. she wears it to it's, the morgue. Like, yep. who it's looks her that outfit. fabulous? That's what I, I called it the morgue outfit in my notes. <laughs> I love that you guys are diving right into the costume porn. Like, you've yes. gotten over trying to just describe what the episode is about because you get distracted we, anyways. We I rest. listen to this podcast. <laughs> We last about a minute yeah. on the recap, and then we're like, and this is one of our, we got things. further on this one than we usually do. Oh, we're actually true. trying harder, I think, for your sake, JoJo. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Don't for, try for my sake. <laughs> you may end up being a good influence on us. Or maybe not. Maybe. I probably am not. <laughs> we'll get to that later. Oh, plot, not, I am definitely not a good influence. <laughs> <laughs> I am very obvious in my costume favorites. The fan dance. Oh, out, yes. I mean, come on. Yeah. And then um, when she is in her full getup, the hey, hombre. With that, and she's got the. That chrysanthemum. What is that? It's There's like a jacket. Like a wrap. What slash. I like is there's so many layers. There's so much stuff going on. And it's all very inviting, which normally yeah. that many, like, things happening wouldn't be. But well, I like that she's choosing to sort of, like, uh, still say stay very sort of showy. Mm-hmm. But she's chosen something that she thinks is appropriate for her brothel work. Yeah. Which is, it's like, a, it's a costume, right? It's very mm-hmm. much a costume. Yeah. Um, but it's still uh, very Miss Fisher. Oh, I love it. Too. And of and of course it holds up to close scrutiny as I'm sure Jack could attest. <laughs> oh my goodness. So I love that you brought up cuz the thing I didn't catch until the rewatch recently was that little scene where she says uh what is it uh, uh hey hombre come with me and she like shoots back the shot and then walks away and the smirk on Jack's face <laughs> his is face. so delightful. <laughs> that is I have rewound that scene so many times because of his expression. 
where to me it's like he's now he's having fun. Here is this mm-hmm. murder case. His divorce is finalized. His divorce is final. He's like getting harassed by literally everyone in this episode <laughs> to do his job. And while they're, he's still having fun. She's making it fun. And for she's him. cranked the flirting up to 11 on this yeah, yeah. one. <laughs> well, because it's her character, right? So she can <laughs> dial it up and it yes. can still be sort of safe. But uh, even at the beginning when they're at the crime scene and she kind of leans in and says, it's her well, sister. Well, season two, we <laughs> yeah. have to dial up something. <laughs> can we talk about the crime scene? Sure. There are just so many things I love. And yes, you pointed out the camera angle that is fantastic when she arrives. And they start, like, I don't think they have done this before. That I can remember, starting basically at her shoe and working up. It's like this. It's the superhero pan. Yeah, it's the it is. like, hey, here's our here's our hero yeah. with one foot up on the car. <laughs> uh, it reminds me of a lot of moments we kind of mock in the X Files, where you see Mulder kind of with like one foot up, uh, <laughs> uh, being the sort of dashing hero. But for her, it's very sincere that we as an audience get to read her as like, nope, this is her story, and she is going to go into that crime scene. And, and solve this case. And we have to have the momentary look on Jack's face of like, oh, you're here too. Secretly. Yay. Secretly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I don't, I don't think it's even too secret. But anyway, the hallway scene is so fun as he commandeers the other. Oh, he pulls rank like com- that? Yeah, That's he totally so good. pulls rank. And her face while she's watching it happen, she's just like, squee, just giddy. Because it's so fun to see that happen. Yeah. Now, I have to admit, I was... Much as I love Jack and every moment with him, I was I was just looking at the interior there, and I was like, "Ooh, paper embossed paper towels on the walls." <laughs> so I think we know the exact opposite. Yeah, pretty much. On, which and yeah, I'm like, "Oh, look at that filigreed rat ironwork on the exterior <laughs> shot." <laughs> well, who's are we supposed to believe that this is Sanderson's estate, or you said an apartment? Like, where are we supposed you to know, believe it's, it's it takes place? It's odd because it's got such a narrow entryway. It's got that kind of classic narrow Victorian entryway that I could believe apartment, mm-hmm. but I don't know. I, I think it is a row house. I think it's a urban row house. Can I tell you about this house? Yeah. I did research oh, on please. it. Oh, please. Yay. Yes. Okay. So that beautiful house is one of the best um, examples of 19th century three-story terrace house in mm. Melbourne. Ooh. Excellent. Um, the architect was Charles Webb. Didn't have time to research what else he did, sorry. Um, But it was built, this whole place was built in 1879 for a wealthy green merchant. Oh, so it is one house then. Yeah, and it was a a family home as well as a guest house or guest home, I guess. Yeah. Um, And then in 1970, it was possibly going to be torn down. Mm. But the National Trust, which I think, as far as I can tell, is basically like our historic registry um, system. Sure. Stepped in and saved it. And now it is their headquarters. Hmm, interesting. It's called Tasma Terrace. Now, I so. wonder if the interior is is also that place or if it was some other interior. That's that's always the puzzle, isn't it? No, it is that place. Is it? Okay. Yeah, I actually saw some of these pictures she went and visited. She even took a picture of the door. The, wow. do- the door with the latch. Yeah. Oh. And I'm, I'm sorry, person whose photos I'm referencing. I can't remember your handle, but you're awesome. <laughs> Miss Fisher Tourism is alive and well oh, yeah. in yes. Australia. I will admit that this is the first time where I'm like, maybe going to Australia for a vacation would be fun. Oh, we'll yeah. We'll be throwing some money into that pot, I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping, in the n- near future. Oh, yeah. 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 I think it's interesting that it has such a narrow 
hallway in there mm-hmm. for such a large house. But yeah, that terraced architecture is what you it's see gorgeous. in like New Orleans or Mobile, yeah. Alabama. Is it so? It's Italian, it right? Is uh, that the... I think it might be. I don't know where it's where it's officially classified, but it's definitely Victorian. It's the same same era as Italian at late you know eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties, and yeah. If you go to um, well, New Orleans is really famous for it, but Mobile, mm-hmm. Alabama, I think is even better. Really, um, there's oh. tons of it there, and it oh. is so beautiful. You see these two and three story houses with this wrought iron work on these balconies and it is just they look like layer cakes yeah. with, with like lace mantillas mm-hmm. over them and well I, if I it's the it. headquarters for the National Trust no wonder it's so beautifully preserved yeah. yes yeah um i love the scene in the hallway where Hugh goes to introduce uh Jack's ex-wife uh, and starts to say that and then g- corrects himself and says... My wife, I mean... The, or, no, Hugh says, oh, this is Jack's... Ex- nope, this is the deputy commissioner's daughter. Yeah. And then Jack is forced to introduce Rosie to Phryne. And it's one of the first times you actually see Phryne a little flummoxed. Yeah. And I also feel like it's because it's just because she didn't know something. He tells her something that she did not know. Yeah, yeah I agree. It's not that he has an ex-wife. Um, it's that she did not know that... Uh, that she was the daughter of the deputy commissioner. Yeah. And she's put out by not knowing something. Well, and then there's that little stumble a, over her last theory. name, too, because yeah. mm-hmm. she takes, she returns back to her maiden name, and he, she says, this is, you know, and he stumbles on the, and he, she just says, Sanderson will be, mm-hmm. Sanderson will be fine. Do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, th- I thought that was a nice little moment. And Franny gets that little lying, she does the lying voice, that's what I call it, when it gets all <laughs> high-pitched, and she's like, oh, so... Commissioner Sanderson is your father-in-law. Former oh. father-in-law. Oh. That's the, oh. I call the, yeah, mm. the, she's a little, that's her, I call it her flummox voice, apparently, yes. and you call yeah. it her lying voice, which is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really fun to see her in that position, because it's like, yeah. the only time, almost. Well, I think we're also in the, that position as watchers, because we haven't really learned anything about Jack. Like, knowing mm-hmm. anything about Jack's background is so sparse at this mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. Um, to learn that little nugget is so delightful. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Oh, I just have a quick note written down that the only time we see Mr. Butler is at the beginning. And again, he's in his dressing gown. (laughs) Is Mr. Butler ever dressed ever again? I don't know. Really, man. Yeah. Yeah. So just a little little, little moment of silence for Mr. (laughs) Butler there. Oh, but also seeing Jack really flummoxed in that scene. Yeah. And yeah. he is just sweating bullets. And I love that he does the little thing. He, like, brushes his eyebrows out of just sheer awkwardness. Yeah. It's he has so got perfect. these great kind of micro expressions mm-hmm. and these little subtleties that I just I just love. I feel like he's got the subtlety thing. There's a lot down. of great, for the season return, a lot of great moments that we get in this episode between Jack and Franny. Yeah. Uh, that's why I think it's this sort of complicated case. There's a lot going on in this case, which makes it really hard to follow. They're introducing a lot of characters, and there's a lot of red herrings, like more than normal. Mm-hmm. And they're yeah. also, you know, they're setting up a story that's going to be completed at the end of the season. Right. So they're right. leaving a lot of things, like, like doors Sydney open. Fletcher and all yeah. that Yeah, oh, business. Sydney Fletcher. We'll get back to Sydney <laughs> and Fletcher. And his nasty, <laughs> gross mustache. I just, I, all I wrote was that cousins are the worst. <laughs> <laughs> because Franny's cousins... Are the worst. That's true. And Rosie's uh, kissing cousin is also the worst. Yeah, he's real gross. Yeah, yes. that's an oh. Which I mean, he's supposed to be like we're yeah. supposed to. But he's so, like, all like brill cream and zoot suit and 
yeah. and pencil mustache. It's, just, he is well he's like John yes. Waters in person. Here. It's just gross. It's not no offense he's to not, John Waters. He's not like camp. He is not <laughs> camped up. But yeah, they, I think they actually cast uh, Sanderson and that guy whose name I forget right now. Uh, you just said it. Uh, Sydney Fletcher. Fletcher, Sydney Fletcher yeah. because we kind of want to punch him in the face, yes. right? Yeah. Oh, like, yeah. The second uh, you see them, you're like, oh, and I he makes a punch. pretentious golf reference to Jack, who clearly has no idea about Nor golf. Nor do I. Thank you, Jack. I, I don't. Yeah, I don't either. And I have to say, I think it's so interesting that the show let Jack be un like whatever that means. unaware of. Like golf I don't know what a triple terms. bogey is because at least. I feel like in our culture, men have to know every sport. They have to be experts. They have to at least know the terminology. Well, but that's and also so, a class distinction. Like, you yeah, know, that's like, true. If men are going to bandy about, like, it'd be like bandying about yacht terms or mm. tennis, you know, oh, I was 40 love at the club today. Like, hmm. that's a rich man's sport. That's true. Whereas he's not going to be talking about, you know, Aussie rules football, which is in a later episode. I mean, he doesn't make, if he made that reference to Jack, Jack would be like, oh, yeah, I was at that game. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's very true. Um, yeah, there's also, like, besides the class distinctions going on, there's a lot happening here with men or the police force or religion trying to sort of, like, save women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that is actually never their intent. Right. We find that it's always something else. They've always got some other motivation. And I noted this episode, uh, the scene with Sanderson, uh, when Jack basically says, here's what happened, uh, he doesn't refer to Lavinia as an actual person. She's just uh, like a dead woman lying on a Persian rug. He doesn't have any remorse. He doesn't say anything that makes us feel like uh, he's concerned yeah. at all. He's like, nope, she's just a dead prostitute. On my Persian on rug. On my Persian rug. Yeah. yeah. It's about the douchiest framing <laughs> possible. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I also learned from that scene what the ter- I'd look up the term bludger mm, because I was like, uh, that's not a Harry Potter reference. No. <laughs> that is not a Harry. I looked it up and a, a bludger is a slang for a pimp. Oh. Yeah. Fascinating. I did not I'm know going that. to write this down. Yeah, yeah. bludger. Uh, I think so. I learned bludger and uh, wowser. We hear that term mm-hmm. later, and that means um, someone who's trying to sort of save others from behavior that is sinful. Huh. Um, yeah. We need a glossary. We need to put I this just together. love yeah. uh, historical Australian slang. <laughs> yeah. And a punter, they use the phrase punter, and that is a John. Mm hmm. Oh, I know that one Hunter. from. Why do I know that one? I guess reading old British novels because uh, I think it's a British I, term. Yeah, as well. They do have some slang in common. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I think you know it's interesting. It's interesting that you bring up the whole savior thing, and then we bring the church into it. And I'm sure there's some Madonna whore business going on somewhere here. Oh yeah. But but also there's there's a what if I think one of the most interesting scenes is when Dot. When when uh, Lola slash whatever her original name is, I've forgotten. Um, when the sister Nell. Nell, Nell, thank you. When she pops by with the gift of the used Bible from the dead woman <laughs> for for Dot, <laughs> charming. Um, and then Dot 
confronts her, and then Doc gets so angry she actually throws a teacup at this woman, which well, is you so know, unlike her. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on, and I, we're sort of dancing around the subject of sex work, like this episode. One of yeah. the interesting topics is how it brings up the idea of sex work, sex work and prostitution in a way that's very different than I think I've really ever seen mm-hmm. in a television show, which is actually quite supportive. And that scene sort of set up this framework of Dot trying to sort of say – you you deserve better. You can do something better. And that dialogue between her and her sister is actually really telling where the sister is like, I could work twice as hard. Um, and For half as much. For half as much. I'm actually, I found something where I can take care of myself. Mm-hmm. And the emotions that Dot has are so strong. It's the yeah. strongest we see her reaction. And she actually says anything. you're breaking our mother's heart. Which, like, I don't see her in that room. We don't actually know how she's feeling about this at all. No, but then Lola Nell talks about their mother as the perfect example. Yeah, and that is an amazing bit of dialogue there where she says, you know, she has to give, she she probably had to give her husband his due no matter, no one would ask her how she felt about it. Six kids, never a break, not enough money to buy herself a new dress. I mean, she really she doesn't pull any punches there. I think that's what we're we're getting these sort of like different sort of like support and against the idea of of sex work, Mm -hmm. Um, which uh, I actually watched this episode with a friend of mine who is a sex worker. And she recently got back from a trip to work at a legal brothel in Nevada. And uh, she had some really great things to say about this episode, about how accurate it actually felt, Hmm. about how a lot of those in sort of like sex work communities and circles have already cited this episode of being really um, a positive representation. Mm. Uh, You know, there's that dialogue between um, uh, the sister and Dot that helps sort of frame like it helps you kind of understand like why. Why would a woman choose to do Mm -hmm. this? Well, as Franny says, throughout antiquity, this is how women have had yes. to support themselves. And that is that has always been true. And I love Miss Fisher because it does a lot of talking about how women are how women survive, right? So mm-hmm. they either get factory work or they get household work, or they do one of the uh, oldest careers <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as sort of Mr. <laughs> Butler tries to tell uh, dot. Um, so, uh, I thought it was really interesting mm-hmm. to watch it with someone who's sort of, who does that work yeah. and saying that, yeah, no, this show actually kind of got it right. I'm yeah. curious about Madame Leon. How, how plausible is she? Uh, like, according to my, my resource, uh, according to my confidant, she said <laughs> that actually Madame Leon is pretty accurate mm-hmm. and she actually was really struck by, uh, when uh, Franny asks Madame Leone, like, could she have been getting work on the side? Mm-hmm. And Madame Leone says, well, if she did, that would be against my rules, and she wouldn't tell me because she's smart. Like, yeah. basically, it's like, she wouldn't tell me mm-hmm. if she yeah. was doing it. And so uh, my friend sort of mentioned that, yeah, there are rules, sort of, especially if you're working within a brothel. Um, and if you take work on the side, it's sort of understood that it might happen because people have to make money to make a living, but that you just wouldn't tell anybody. Yeah. There's the sort of right. don't ask, don't tell. Mm-hmm. Don't ask, don't tell. Well, I think there's something else about that scene between Dot and Lola that is really fascinating to me, and it's this kind of subtext story that's being told by the costumes. And I have all these notes just about that scene, hmm. and they're both dressed in an identical color scheme. They're yes. both in the same color of peach, but they have very different outfits. And there's kind of there's kind of a surface look, and then there's kind of this what's below the surface that kind of comes through. And Dot is in her classic 
dowdy cardigan with a little picot hem and the little <laughs> embroidery over her little frilly, very matronly. My God, that's like the most matronly thing I've ever <laughs> seen her wear. And that is saying something for Dot. Um, <laughs> but Lola is wearing this exact same color. And she's wearing this kind of frock coat and the hat. She, she wears that same hat every time we see her outside. It's like she has one outfit that yes. is her kind of suitable for consumption in public outfit. And that she has that one hat. And this coat, which we see a detail of it later, and it's got this beautiful kind of embossed peacock feather texture on yeah. it that's really mm-hmm. lovely and subtle. But I got the read that – so while she looks much finer and more worldly and more sophisticated and fashionable than Dot does, Dot's clothing is impeccably maintained and is has no holes and is perfectly pressed and everything. And – Lola's outfit is a little threadbare. Like mm-hmm. she's only got the one public outfit and she she wears that you talked about Jojo you talked about wearing these costumes like this work that they do in this club it's very much a persona a costume yeah. thing. And she has these kind of opulent costumes that she wears at the club but they aren't the same kind of finery that Franny has. It's much more of a costume, costume jewelry, mm-hmm. paste jewelry. Well, at the end of the day, it's in the club, it's a job. It's a job right. that you wear a uniform. It's your uniform, for. right? So it's not going to be haute couture. It's no. not going to be hand sewn. This is going to be something you've worn every day and gotten sweaty in and mm-hmm. had beer spilled on she for works years. In that uniform. Yeah, yeah. And so she's, you know, she's opulent at first glance, but then you see there's kind of a threadbareness to it because she is actually she's working hard. She probably doesn't have a huge disposable income. She's making better money than she would at say a factory, but. Mm-hmm. She's she's not she's not going to make the kind of money that Franny has unless she becomes in the position position of Madame Leon yeah. someday. It's interesting. Uh, an interesting discussion I've been having about sex work as of late is the idea of actually treating uh, uh, prostitution. It's a job, like it is a job, and it's not who you are. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. my friend was talking about sort of like some of the rules that she had to work under when she worked at a legal brothel in the United States and how she was treated like she was never not a prostitute. That was yeah. always who she was. It was like being a mother or um, uh, something else. Like it Teachers was her entire that persona, yeah. and she could never leave it behind. And yeah. I actually like in the show that it treats – that as a job and mm-hmm. it's not who they are. Right. And there actually, there's a little bit of back and forth about that. Um, and my friend spent a great deal of time trying to figure out if the girls lived in the brothel or not. She was wanting to know that. Um, and she was also sort of analyzing like everything that everyone said and said mostly things seemed pretty accurate. Huh. Um, I would guess that they did live there. It was in a very large yeah. building and the club was only in one part of it. I would yes. imagine there were probably rooms that they lived in. Because I was trying to also, like, what is that room where I I would call it, like, a lap dance room in modern terms? (laughs) What do you think that room is? She's like, well, I think that's probably, like, a consultation room where you kind of take your uh, client aside and, like, negotiate terms and then take them to your private boudoir. And so that's where her and Jack have their little um, too-close-for-comfort scene. (laughs) Which I must say is one of my favorite scenes. In I the just whole wrote it down. My mo- notes just say boob scene. It's the boob scene. It's the boob <laughs> smash scene. That is what I call it. And he, you know, it's the like, 
uh, it's a little, too, or something like it's a little too close, and he says it still is, mm-hmm. and then she's like, "Let me get a head start," and he says, "I always do," and I'm like, "Man!" <laughs> but there is that sweet spot of those few seconds where she's still on his lap, looking down, and they have a moment. They're not and it's hurrying. Actually, yeah, they're not hurrying. <laughs> There's this is, a lot of I information. Call this, this is uh, will be relevant to our conversation. The slow burn of a tease. Yes. Right? Oh yeah. The show what it does exceptionally well is there's banter between the two, but it's like slowed down. It's not that 1930s uh, fast banter that we see in movies like uh, uh, Bringing Up Baby or His Girl Friday. It's just like really slow, mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah, uh, Aaron Sorkin ain't writing this stuff. Nope, <laughs> not at all. Um, and I, I love fan fiction. Uh, I've oh, talked oh, a little really? bit about this with Mary, <laughs> um, but I love fan fiction, and to me, this is like my favorite sort of fan fiction trope moment mm-hmm. where mm. they get sort of jam together unexpectedly undercover. Oops! <laughs> Oops! Oh, uh, put into you know compromising situations while undercover. And, you know, it's such a fan fiction thing that she just happens to be undercover at a brothel. Um, I also... How serendipitous. How serendipitous. <laughs> My other favorite fan fiction trope is uh, the uh, too small of spaces. So accidentally getting shoved oh, into yeah, a right. too small of space. I'm sorry. I have to do this fan dance in a phone booth. Yay. <laughs> With you. With you. With you. The door is locked. So we can't get out. <laughs> or uh, in the X-Files universe, it was always the, like... Uh, one hotel room, one bed. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. That's so good. (laughs) Miss Fisher is just an endless exploration of things that should be in fan fiction. Oh, yeah. Her Spanish accent is hilariously terrible. It's so bad. (laughs) It is. I think it's a choice, right? She's like, (laughs) I am doing this character. And no one bats an eye. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, she's from Spain. Except Dot. Dot. Dot who says... Are you Mexico? You're pretending to be Mexico. Spain dot. You went to all this trouble with the, fa- with the feathers and the being Mexican. <laughs> Spanish dot. She has that perfect That, tone. like, flat... Yeah. That's the only time she's ever used that with dot. Well, this is where, like, we're in the show where actually... This is where camp comes in, right? The idea of, like, Miss Fisher is adopting this character and she chooses to, like, put on a costume mm-hmm. and a... And a understandably kind of terrible accent. <laughs> oh, it's so good. It's, it's like so Hank Azaria in the birdcage. You know, yes. come on, Gloria. It's not <laughs> I would have been so sassy top, to do. But it's pretty close. <laughs> and her little drawn-on curl. Oh, yeah, the, oh, the curl. Little, little curl is so good. It is good. Yeah, and she, she wears a fabulous, talk about these flapper outfits. She wears that fabulous gold flapper outfit that her first yes. night in the club and she's yeah, got that right gold headdress. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. gorgeous. Uh, she also wears her, one of her robes. I think it's the cockfight The cockfight, yeah. In the dressing room. In the room. dressing room. And I, the robe on the other gal, is it Nina? Is it Lena? I Lena. 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 Hers, I think that's actually a hand-painted robe. Like hmm. Some of the fabrics from that period weren't they weren't dyed or printed they were actually hand painted when they're not a print, not a repeat like that and so that's my guess on that robe so the costumer we're saying is a national treasure for australia pretty much she should be registered yeah oh yeah definitely yeah marion boyce she's having Amazing. so much fun costuming this show you can tell yeah the little jokes that she inserts and how she chooses to costume a scene make me so happy yeah although there is one i feel like you know we've talked about this before with dot wearing that classic flapper silhouette and it not working on her body Mm -hmm. type and we have lena wears she wears kind of a drop-waisted 
um, flapper gown. And she's a curvier, bustier gal than the other girls in this this club. And it just doesn't work on her. So she's in this, like, hot pink color. So it kind of just <laughs> yeah. stands out. And I'm like, honey, get yourself, like, move that waistband up and it will be perfect. <laughs> I, I actually was watching to see, like, what do the women look like at this, at the Imperial Club, a.k.a. the brothel. Um, and there are a variety. We see different races. We see different sizes. And mm-hmm. we presume different ages because Franny is essentially hired as a sex worker in this club. And she's in her mid-40s mm-hmm. and no one bats an eye. Right. I also noticed, and my my friend, point, or my friend pointed this out, that all of the names of all of the workers are L, Lavinia, Lola, Lena. Lulu, Lulu. Lini, yeah. Miss uh, Madame wow. Leon. And she's like, is that their gimmick? Because she's like, brothels have gimmicks, right? That's kind of their thing. And I was like, I don't know what huh. that gimmick would be, but they all have L names. That's interesting. So maybe that's maybe that's something. And maybe that's a measure of protection as well, because Lola is not Dot Sisters' Well, they all adopt name. personas, right, right, to protect themselves. Right. Huh. That is really interesting. I never noticed. Which is also, uh, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, but in burlesque, uh, performers tend to adopt uh, a false name when performing. And it is have a little bit to do with that sort of stigma that still surrounds being a burlesque performer. Hmm. Yeah. Um, but also because it's it's fun. It's fun to have a persona and sort of like what I do by day and then this is what I do by night. By day, I'm Jessica Obrist, but at night, I'm JoJo Stiletto. And Franny and is, is Batman at night. <laughs> she is Batman. With a grappling hook and everything. So I'm curious about the origin of your name. Mm. Oh, uh, well, um, there was a troupe in Seattle in the year 2004 called the Gun Street Girls, uh, all inspired Ooh. by Tom Waits' songs. Oh, um, and all of their names were plays on weapons, like Candy Whiplash and Bella Beretta. <laughs> and I knew that if I went and saw this show, it would be like running away to join the circus, um, that I would uh, never be able to stop. And I did. I saw one of their shows, and I remember afterwards, actually, at The Rendezvous, which is a club in Belltown in Seattle, Washington, um, having a conversation about, like, well, wh- ha, 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 what would my name be if I ever performed burlesque? And my friends helped me brainstorm JoJo Stiletto. JoJo, because of my initials, and I have a fascination with early American sideshow and circus. Interesting. Mm. Um, so JoJo the dog face boy. Um, oh, and so uh, good. Also, stiletto because it's a fashion item and also a weapon. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I first performed burlesque in 2005. I also joined roller derby that same year. That's such a roller derby so name, too. It, it's mm-hmm. a name that served both those words very well. Um, and so uh, while I made the distinction of daytime and nighttime versions of myself, I'm always JoJo now. Um, nice. Sometimes I'm Jessica. When you're forced to be, or you yeah. just prefer to be JoJo? Uh, gen- generally at work, I'm more Jessica. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Interesting. Yeah. I also so, looked up to see if anyone had the same name as Miss Fisher, Lulu Lorita. Lulu Lorita. There's a lot of Lulus out in the burlesque world, but there's no Lulu Lorita yet. Ah, interesting. Nice. Well, I don't have a burlesque name, but I do have a roller derby name, and I've never actually done roller derby. But I have the name. What's your name? It would be Helena Handbasket, That's and my number one. would be WD-40. That's pretty great. That's pretty great. Do you have one? I don't. Oh, right. Your your Instagram handle, is it Instagram? Is Mary Contrary, which yeah. is really good. Thank you. That would be a very good burlesque name. Yeah. yeah. It would be. Yes. Yeah. 
Okay. So when That's good. you step on stage to do your fan dance, you learned in less than three hours. <laughs> Really from your sexy two. flamenco instructor, yeah. of course. We, we took an hour can we break. Just, can we, yeah, should we just, an hour to recover. Should we uh-huh. just go there? Should we go to the fan dance part of this episode? Yes. However, I want to circle back and ask more about Perfect. the performances that you do. Okay. And Yeah, so uh, this is the only episode of any sort of pop culture anything, movie, well, I shouldn't say that, not movie, that has a canon fan dance for me, that really? was so exciting. I mean, we see them as hmm. set dressing, right? So mm-hmm. uh, uh, Boardwalk Empire, I'm quite positive. There's stuff happening in the background. Um, other TV shows, there's always that one episode where there's some sort of like burlesque gimmick happening and there's like background, background scene dressing of burlesque performances. But this is one where a actual main character does some sort of burlesque-related performance. And also... They show the drawing of the fans, <laughs> which to me is just absolute candy. Uh, I, I pause on that drawing and I analyze it. It's three-foot fans with ostrich feathers. It has uh, drawings of the staves uh, to help Dot learn how to make fans in like half a day. Because that's so easy. Just to go pluck oh, yeah. and dye she some really, ostrich feathers. She's a whiz. She and they're out. alternating colors, pink, white, pink, white, pink, white, which I didn't notice oh, until, yes. until the end of the dance where they're completely And I watched unfurled. that show with other burlesque performers because FYI, Miss Fisher is very popular amongst the burlesque performing arts community. Um, and they can identify most likely where they were purchased online. <laughs> that's so amazing. <laughs> I love it. Um, oh, but I love that drawing. I love that fan dance. I love that there's a joke about uh, they have a three-hour lesson, but, you know, two hours of it will be spent doing something else. <laughs> so and an good. hour recovering, which I assume means none of the actual lessons. I love the, the little micro-expression on his face where he goes, ooh, like he makes that kind of ooh <laughs> look <Yes>. at her. <laughs> um, and, you know, for someone who actually didn't learn how to do a fan dance, Franny does a pretty good job. This is my, my my critique of her performance is she does a decent job considering also she never held fans because Dot is delivering them to her. Right. So she's never actually held them. Wow. She spent, yes, she would have had to practice without without any placeholder. She would have just had Yeah, them. and she spent most of her lesson horizontal dancing, not vertical dancing. <laughs> Um, and so she does a very decent job of doing a fan dance, which three hours is not nearly enough time to learn how to use, uh, burlesque fans properly. It's actually quite complicated to know how to hold them. I would imagine. And how to move them around your body without like smacking yourself in the face, which is very unsexy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and you have to do these quick changes like front to back. And I mean, because that's Mm -hmm. the the tease is the big part of it. It's like you don't reveal anything till the end. Everything. And I wanted to actually find out more because I know a lot of the history of American burlesque. I wanted to find out more like would it have been historically accurate for Franny to do a fan dance in late 1920s Australia. Um, Even if it wasn't historically accurate, I wouldn't care. But I wanted to know. Um, And... uh, I went to the internet to find out more about Australian burlesque, and it found found out that there's actually very little history, written mm. history of Australian burlesque. Hmm. Um, that it is uh, there's actually an Australian burlesque museum, and it's kind of like shrouded in mystery right now. Mm-hmm. The history of, of Australian burlesque. It was more scandalized to be a burlesque performer in Australia than it was in the United States. And mm-hmm. I actually talked to some Australian 
burlesque performers to actually ask them. I was like, I'm not finding any internet so- sources. I need original uh-huh. sources. And this performer, uh, Dollar Dazzler, basically said, um, you know, the burlesque that had come to Australia was very British. So mm. at that before the 1920s, it was more of these sort of like parodies or satires, more of the traditional definition of the word burlesque. So like uh, spoofing an opera. Mm. Um, but uh, the American burlesque is where the striptease really entered into burlesque, especially in the 1920s. So if Phryne was performing a fan dance in 1929, she was probably very cutting edge. She'd probably maybe heard about it. Um, from some parties or papers from the Americas. Mm -hmm. Um, And if she had done so publicly in Melbourne, it would have been an absolute scandalous sensation Um, because right about that time is when uh, American burlesque performers are coming to that part of Australia and uh, making big waves with this sort of strip tease or Hmm. hiding of nudity burlesque. Yeah. Yeah. I my one sadness about her burlesque her her fan dance performance is that we don't get to see that amazing shoulder piece that she's wearing yeah. in its entirety because it's not just a necklace, it's not it's not just a collar. It actually covers her shoulder. So there's clearly some hmm. interesting reveal happening there and I just wanted to like see it so I could see how it was constructed and how one wears such a thing and so I, you know, I would want to see that fan dance like in person for a totally different reason <laughs> than everybody else in that audience. Well, we also don't get to see is she wearing pasties? I assume or right. not. she is. I assume that she's not. I assume that oh, really? she's not. I assume that she yeah. is topless. She would be like, let's go. Yeah. Um, and and uh, she and Jack's there. Cool. Yeah. That all the reaction faces of that scene were amazing. They oh, are fantastic. And the that whole <laughs> that it's cut or edited to show you see her coming to the stage, you cut to Jan Jack's face with the music. That smirk. That him not looking at her and then looking up to see her and smirking. Um uh, we also see all the other characters get to react to this moment. And they all react in a way that is commensurate with their personality. Yeah, yes. They're like, perfect. Hugh is completely bug-eyed. And, um, you know, Cess and, like, Cess is like, yeah. And Bert's like, oh, I know. <laughs> I mean, they all kind of have. Like, I've been here. Dawn is scandalized as well. And I kind of feel But I think she probably she... was also like, oh, that's what the fans are for. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Well, so, like, the fan dance uh, was very popularized in the United States around that time. Mm-hmm. Um, 1933 is when Sally Rand became very famous for performing her fan dance at the Chicago World's Fair. Mm-hmm. Um, and she did hers to Claire de Lune. Claire de Lune. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the actual, there's actually a contested history of the origination of the American fan dance. Huh. Uh, so if you want to go down a fun... Uh, Internet rabbit hole, look up uh, Sally Rand and Faith Bacon. Faith Bacon Mm -hmm. is a performer that sort of, uh, in theory, predates Sally Rand uh, with her fan dance, which she claims came out of the idea. So at that time, 
on stages in the United States, um, women uh, could only be seen as nude if they were standing still, because then it was art, right? It's oh, right, they're posing. Tableau vivant, right? Okay. Yeah. So they're allowed to be uh, art. A, a human woman body is allowed to be sort of objectified if it is considered a piece of classic artwork. So you get sort of that Ziegfeld Follies, mm. uh, n- uh, nude women holding up fans, right? Holding still. Yeah. And I, uh, oh God, what was the name of uh, a New York producer uh, who worked with Faith Bacon. Uh, he kept trying to like push the boundaries mm-hmm. of what was allowed because you know if they were being scandalous, they would sell more tickets. So she had this idea of like, how about I do something where when I'm standing still, I'm revealed, but when I'm moving, I'm covering my body. Oh. And she said she suggested ostrich feathers. So thus we have the fan dance. So when the performer is uh, moving, they are cloaked, as we see with mm-hmm. Franny. And when they are still, we can see their body fully. That's very clever. Very um, interesting. And the, the controversy is because both of them claim uh, Sally Rand and Faith Bacon to have invented the fan dance. There's like lawsuits and all sorts of really interesting <laughs> stuff wow. happening. But people are actually reading those documents. Unlike a million other documents that are super yeah, yeah. boring, but this involves I mean, fan dancing. The history yeah. of American burlesque is absolutely well. And then we, there's Josephine Baker, who, you know, she was she had the added layer of being black, and she actually became famous in Paris. They yes. loved her in Paris, and she did her famous maybe banana dance. In, uh, maybe that's also where Franny had seen a fan dance was when she was in Paris. Right. 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 Um, but also, like going way back to sort of like. Uh, mid-19th century United States, like 1860s, um, the American burlesque at that time was a British import. And it was uh, Lydia Thompson and her British blondes were of the most popular troops who had come over (laughs) to do these. um, They were like pop culture satire is what I call them. They would do like parodies of like Shakespeare plays or Robinson Crusoe. And they would dress as men, scandalous, mm-hmm. and then revealing costumes, which meant like f- form-fitting, fit their body fabric from head to toe. Oh, yeah. Because even ballerinas could only wear like long skirts and full tights. Um, but these women were speaking, and they were dressed scandalously. Mm-hmm. And they were being uh, critical of sort of like uh, upper class and also politics of the day. So they were doing hmm. these sort of parodies and satires. And, of course, they were insanely popular. Later, it's like it, the female form really becomes the focus in the, like, 1900, 1920 era. Mm-hmm. And then, 19, like, from the 20s to the 40s is when burlesque is, like, huge in New York especially. Mm-hmm. And then Mayor LaGuardia basically says, nope, stop. Oh, good old LaGuardia. <laughs> Now he has the worst airport named after him. <laughs> that's like the history of burlesque is really about women misbehaving to what society tells them they're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. And that remains the same. I, I think there's some interesting ties to pop culture as well. You mentioned joining burlesque was a lot like joining the circus. And it's interesting that you bring that up because there is a connection there. I feel like with these, with burlesque dancers, with these brothels and circus they have something in common in that they're kind of these closed communities where mm-hmm. 
They are show, they're show persons, but they live all, they all live together in this community and they all kind of are accepted for what their, their personal differences are and are celebrated for them. And, um, you know, when you talked about Sally Rand, I did some digging on her as well. And she also has a background with the circus. She Hmm. studied ballet formally in Kansas City. Um, and then she joined the Ringling Brothers and then from there went to Hollywood. And she did some really interesting and innovative things with costume as well. Not just like the fan dance stuff or her bubble dance. She did a bubble dance yep. as well. But um, she once paraded down on a horse <gasps> in Chicago as Lady Godiva Just, in a body stocking. Ooh. So she like, basically wore what one of the... Uh, what the cousin's the, fiance uh, did. The oh, cousin's nice, wore, yeah. She basically yeah. did that. And she wore body paint as a publicity stunt by Max Factor, like the Max Factor, wow. to launch his brand new line of makeup. Think of all the Vanity Fair covers we've seen in the Hello, last, Demi like, Moore yeah. in that suit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. From like 1991 or whatever right. that was. Wow. Yeah, and she... Um, All this illusion of nudity, yeah. right? And so they're playing with sort of like the morals and mores of the day by saying right. well, women aren't supposed to be these things. I'm going to go be it, but it's actually an illusion. Right, and Sally Rand used to sign her autograph photos with your fan, Sally Rand, <laughs> which is so good. <laughs> And there's a really interesting story about her in 1946, even after, I mean, well after all all of this initial outcry of burlesque and all of these things, you know, morality kind of cracked down, down again after World War II, like because the, the post-war era of the 50s and everything, people were very uptight then. And so it kind of makes sense that in 1946, Sally Rand was arrested in San Francisco mm. for nudity during a fan dance at the um, Club Savoy. And... While she was awaiting trial, the judge granted her immunity so that she couldn't be arrested for the same crime, so double jeopardy, which is in the Constitution. Um, but she got arrested anyway. She, she was, wanted to get arrested, yeah. I'm sure. Well, she was we- she was doing a fan dance, and she was wearing a body stocking, so she was not nude. Huh. And written on the body stocking somewhere was a sign that said, censored. Yes. San Francisco Police Department, SFPD, and they arrested her. This long history of women being told what to do by the legal system or morality or society and absolutely defining it with humor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Thank you for solving my dilemma about what to wear on Halloween. Yes! (laughs) Censored SFPD. I could probably help you out with that. You know, you could go to our Dead Feminist launch dressed as Sally (gasps) Rand. Oh my gosh, that would be so fun. I'm just saying. We can get you some fans. I can get you some fans real (laughs) easy. That would be amazing. I can draw you a sign that says censored. I was uh, one of the stories I was like when I was looking at Faith Bacon and her talking about it was Earl Carroll was the name of the producer who had done the show called Vanities in which he uh, allowed the performers to breaking the law to move while they were uh, uh, gave the illusion of being nude. Hmm. They were actually moving on stage instead of being still. And the district attorney is like, no, you can't do that. And he refused to shut the show down. And, like, they said there was this very comedic scene of cops running around the stage with, like, blankets trying to cover the women. (laughs) Which, of course, the audience is, like, dying over, right? So So every time they try to sort of stop burlesque in those, like, in that before LaGuardia era, it becomes part of the appeal, right? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, there's even a Looney Tunes cartoon that that has that references Sally Rand. It's from, I think, 1941. It was directed by Tex Avery, who was yep. my favorite 
animation director. And it is one of those, they did several of these cartoons where they do caricatures of celebrities. So they kind of, they just kind of go shot to shot to shot caricaturing whatever, like Greta Garbo or the Marx Brothers or whoever was famous in the day. And they did a little snippet of, they called her Sally Strand, and she's holding a bubble, and you know the bubble kind of gets away from her, and then it cuts to a caricature of Peter Lorre saying, "I haven't seen a bubble that beautiful since I was a small boy," or whatever, and it's just so weird and surreal, but it was chock full of pop culture references, and everybody would have known. Huh. Well, I think that's why I love this episode so much is Franny paying homage to that part of my personal history of these uh, women who defied. Uh, defied law, defied society. Um, having her actually do a fan dance to yeah. me is really, uh, it's perfect. It's a yeah. perfect homage to feminists of earlier eras. Yeah. And I think it's kind of the perfect symbol of of that world. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, it's 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 this wonderful mix. And, and I think going back to Sally Rand choosing Claire de Lune for her music, I mean, She's saying, like, no, this is an art form. This isn't just titillating. This is beautiful. You have to be a real dancer mm-hmm. to do this. You can't, you know, you, I'm sorry, you can't learn a fan dance in two hours. Like, <laughs> she probably, she spent her life honing this. And yeah. I also like how it plays into the mystery and sort of the power structure between her and Jack in the show because he has to look at this mystery from the outside. Right. And she's able to dive right in. And actually, be in that imperial club. Yeah, Jack with can't the women. infiltrate. No, a club. they he can't see a cop coming from a mile I away. Also, love that when he encounters her in the club, he doesn't try to tell her to leave or stop because she doesn't have his blessing to be undercover. She did it on her own, and when he sees her there, he doesn't try to like shoo her out or say this is inappropriate. And I think that's what I would expect as the narrative from, like, uh, American shows mm-hmm. especially yeah. would be like, no, 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 you don't belong here. You need to stop. You're meddling. This is indecent. Get mm-hmm. out. And instead he smiles. He smiles. And he's like, yep, of course she did. Of yeah. course she's the one up there. And just this. And he even says later, he said, well, you know, you know, you, you do. I, if I were to go undercover, I don't <laughs> think the fans would work for me. Quite <laughs> so, the ostrich feathers. I'd would be work willing for me. to view it. Yeah, and just I, decide. I think, watch I think we, yeah, he Jack needs to submit that for our striptease. objective evaluation. Yeah. Let us yeah. be the decider mm-hmm. of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, that okay. That little bit where Lola is flirting with Hugh over his shiny buttons, over his shiny buttons, and 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 then Jack kind of explains it to him, and then Hugh's. Goggle-eyed expression is he? But but I I, I know. Hugh's <laughs> expressions just in general it's are gold. the best. Solid gold. It's so good. And I, oh, when he when uh, Dot is going into the club and he's like, oh, Miss, no, oh, what are those? Like, he's like the fans. He's like, what are those? It's like I can't Ooh. cannot compute. I'm just like everyone <laughs> wants to get in that brothel so bad. Like everyone wants to see what's inside. Which is sort of like the great, like everyone wants to see what's underneath. Mm-hmm. Everyone right. wants the tease, right? Right. Um, which is kind of, I, I think, uh, Miss Fisher's murder mystery is a great metaphor for burlesque in general. That it's not mm. about the sex, even though sex right. is a big part of it. It is about the tease. It is about the slow burn. The slow burn. It's right. about yeah. everything else and not the goods. That's you know when we when we met last week before we recorded um, 
and we talked about pinups. I think that's the same thing. I mean, I'm as an illustrator, I'm really interested in pinups, and it has the same thing. It's not pinups very rarely show any actual actual body parts. You know, it's very rare, and um, and it's more about the scenario, the imagination, the playfulness, the yeah, the setup of it. Mm-hmm. It's about everything else. And it's also like the, we often talk in in in. In, in burlesque and in popular culture about the male gaze, right? Yeah. Um, about how the camera becomes the lens of male eyes. Mm-hmm. And especially in modern burlesque, it, it actually completely upends that. It's the idea that a woman gets to choose how her body is being seen and she gets to narrate her own body and frame her own body for mm-hmm. audiences in general, mm-hmm. um, which I think is really interesting. And I loved that what they got really correct about burlesque in this episode is that Franny is making eye contact with the audience as well. She's inviting them to look at her and she's also making eye contact. She's breaking that fourth wall, yeah. which is a very important part of modern burlesque, mm-hmm. um, that instant connection. And that's also yeah. So it's very not just friny. voyeurism. Yeah, it's, it's a, not just voyeurism. Yeah, um, and pinups too often are making a looking specific at look the, at the uh, looking at the. They viewer. kind of look back and go, "Oops, I, I yeah. leaned over and all my clothes fell off." <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really curious to hear more about the productions that you've put together. Yeah, because you produce, you perform, yeah. and um, no big deal. You were voted 2014 Mayor of Seattle Burlesque. That's, uh, that oh, yeah. seems kind of... Madam, no. Madam X-Mayor is what I am right okay. now. <laughs> I also go by uh, sort of uh, the tagline, the mayor, uh, not mayor of burlesque, the uh, professor of nerdlesque. Um, I'm particularly <laughs> interested in the idea of using pop culture inspiring uh, what happens on burlesque stages. I have personally produced a handful of shows that sort of take inspiration from nerd culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've done, uh, did a show for Emerald City Comic called Emerald City Comic Con called Guardians of the Sexy, um, and I've done, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I did a show uh, called Weednesque Burlesque, burlesque inspired by the works of Joss Whedon, uh, the Burlesque Files, the truth is down there. <laughs> So, so good. good. So, so good. good. If I had a time machine. Which oh, I always I know. like, it's I not wish. much different than uh, Lydia Thompson and her British blondes doing a parody and spoof of, like, Robinson Crusoe, which was, like, their pop culture of the oh. day. And I also did Bechdel Test Burlesque, which was specifically sort of taking the idea of, like, feminist geek culture and letting it play out on stage. Wow. Um, so strong female characters. Uh, and upcoming, I am producing a Miss Fisher-inspired burlesque event. <gasps> Squeak! Uh, which is what I how I found the podcast as I was doing research for that, because it's very important for me to understand, like, why people have a connection to a text, why people like this mm. thing, what about this fan culture uh, excites people. Um, and we're calling it Miss Fishnet's Stripper Mysteries. <laughs> Love and you know, love that. and that's the idea. It's like not. I don't want to just be like, hey, maybe you will get to see Jack do a strip tease. So you get to, <laughs> but it's uh, that's true. You probably will. But like in my shows, I want to show people something more. I love fan art. I love fan fiction. I love the studying of the products of fandom. So how do we express ourselves artistically by these fandoms that we love? I love Tumblr art. I love reading fan fiction. I love the idea of why people create fan fiction. And burlesque is really just fan fiction come to life. Like, tell me something new about these characters. Let me see them in a new adventure. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and even it, the idea of it can be critical. We can see burlesque acts that actually um, critique pop culture. For example, in the Whedon burlesque show that we did, there's an act about appropriating Asian culture and Firefly. Hmm. And it's a woman, <laughs> yeah, it's a woman sort of say, like dressed as a China doll, right? Oh, and wow. trying to get into the spotlight on stage. And every time she gets to it, it moves. So, like, it's this whole exploration hmm. of, like, and then she uh, takes off all of these sort of dressings that she's been put in to make her, like, scene dressing. Uh, and it becomes very emotional. That hmm. is burlesque. That's so good. So. You know, I feel, I th- think the fan thing is really interesting because before Mary kind of brought me into the fold here, I mean, I, the things that I love, I am passionate about them, whether they be books, movies, films, whatever. Um, but I don't tend to participate in fandoms. I never, I never have. I never have written fan fiction. Um, I've read a little, but, um, I haven't really, like, and I make images for a living. That's what I do, but I've never made fan images really of things. And, and so, but I'm really interested in this, fan culture thing because it's it, it's it's taking whatever whatever the product is whether it's a film or whatever and it's turning it into basically archetypes and mythology yeah. which is i think what people have done throughout history there you know there are so many stories that reference older stories you know lord byron referencing greek mythology or whatever i mean they we we tend to do that we tend to take stories that mean something to us and then turn them into other stories yep well, you actually, you chose an interesting word. You used the word product, which I always, uh, when I talk about, like, why I'm interested in studying burlesque and fandom is this great quote from an academic scholar, Henry Jenkins, which basically says that fan fiction is a way of repairing the damage done when myths are owned by corporations instead oh. of owned by the folk. Interesting. So it's the idea wow. of, like, with all of these stories that are our stories now, today mm-hmm. in our culture, mm-hmm. are owned by corporate entities when they're products, even if they're very enjoyable products. What happens when we, like, we have no ownership of them, we have no way of influencing them anymore, so we create these products, we write stories. Like an we, alternate universe. Yeah. yeah. And it's, you know, there's a lot of study about fan fiction, which I'm interested in because I think burlesque is like fan fiction, is, uh, you know, the idea of, like, original, like, Trek Kirk that Trek, Kirk and Spock fan fiction slash fic, slash fic was about queering these stories. So things that weren't present, that were true, that people weren't being represented mm-hmm. in. It's our way of sort of like finding uh, that and inserting it into stories, right? Mm-hmm. So appropriating pop culture and then bending it to our will. So you can you can queer it. You can change the sex of a character. You can uh, change the race of a character. You know, you can put, insert yourself in the story, which isn't a way of changing. Main like we can't insert more people of color in the actual Miss Fisher. But we can maybe do it in our versions of Miss yeah. Fisher, mm-hmm. yeah. and maybe it won't change Miss Fisher, but it might change the next show that comes out. Right, mm-hmm. right. I think that's really interesting. You know, I um, I'm kind of fall- in my own life. I'm kind of falling down another series rabbit hole, um, and I've I've just started getting into Scandal. Uh oh, which is <laughs> white hats on. I know, <laughs> which which is another. I think it's really an interesting comparison, and I think a good follow up to fi- to Franny Fisher. And of course, it's there's enough of it out there that it's sort of like 
I can fill that hole where I've had my loss of priming because there, there isn't any more right now. And, mm-hmm. you know, the classic, the way to get over someone is to get under it someone like, else. Like, the just total <laughs> opposite. Like, Miss Fisher's the slow burn, but... Scandal is oh, not no. a slow burn. Yeah, if you're ever, like, aching for if, you know, will Franny and Jack just do it already, just watch Scandal because there's plenty of it. and a lot. But I think there's some similarities. I mean, I, I feel like Car- Carrie Washington, first of all, is phenomenal. If you've ever seen the series, she is – I feel like she is comparable to Essie Davis and her talent and her presence and her just – badassery. She's just been <laughs> phenomenal and she's an incredible actress. Um, and there's, and the show is actually quite feminist. It's written by a woman. It's written by a woman of color. Yeah. So there's some really interesting Shonda. Uh, Shonda Rhimes. There's some really interesting stuff there about a woman in power who is a person of color. And hmm. no big deal is really made of that. There's a little bit of it that comes up, but rarely. But for all, for all of its leaps and bounds, it's still a American show on a mainstream network. So holy cow, the slut shaming in that show. There's so much morality business, not from everybody, but from certain characters. And I could set up a whole drinking game of the number of times someone says whore. You could like be in a hospital after that. (laughs) (laughs) There's actually like no one really calls anyone a like an actual like no slur for a prostitute no they don't they use like what i would call cute slang from the 1920s Um, like a lady of disrepute or and the only person who does it is actually maury at the very end but he does it in a way because he's mad at her for betraying her kind Hmm. it's almost like he uses it against her he would never call one of his friends that but he uses it against her because she went against them. She's like a dirty cop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and I feel like that's, that's a major contrast. You know, I'm sitting here watching Scandal and thinking, God, if this were Franny, like no one ever calls Franny a slut or right. a whore. For- no, they've created this wonderful alternate right. universe. And the number of times that somebody calls Kerry Washington a whore for having an affair with, spoiler, the president. Which is why the show is so refreshing <laughs> is because she is allowed to have her sexuality right. um, without major repercussions. And right. this ep- this episode especially where it is a very it's a it's about selling sex, right? Mm-hmm. It is actually the literal definition is, of the term. I'm selling sex. But there's she has such a great quote which I wrote down and will be too hard to find in my notes, <laughs> which is something of the effect of um well, I'm not like I'm okay with it, but I'm not going to sell mm-hmm. I'm not selling myself but I okay, so that I give it away for free. You know, she's like, I have no problem with others doing it. I just happen to want to have lots of sex, but not get paid for it. There is no problem with other. She people. also doesn't need to get paid for it. Nope, she has a no need of that. Um, yeah, I um, I think this is all really really interesting, and I I think. Um, I don't know. I feel like that they've created this world. And we've talked, I know Mary and I have talked about over and over again how women in this show don't get catty with each other. They don't Mm-mm. get competitive or jealous or all the all of the stereotypical shallow things that women are portrayed as doing doesn't happen on this show. And it's the same thing here, I think, with this brothel. Like these, this is where these girls work. It's their job. They are close-knit because they have to be. And it's it shows them from the position of power. And Which when, is not how we usually see Yeah, this. and when Franny mixes it up with Madame Leon, when Franny does her little breaking and entering and gets into a tussle <laughs> with Madame Leon, it's not over morality or sex. It's like, hey, I'm trying to run a business mm-hmm. here. And if Don't you, mess with if me. You, and if she, she challenges If you endanger her, that. Then all of these women will not, will be turned out. They will mm-hmm. have no way to take care of themselves. So right. she's literally trying to preserve everybody. Yeah. 
um, which we can we can commiserate with. We can understand Madame Leon's point of view. I think actually this does, the show does a good job of of really helping us understand everyone's point of view except for the cops. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Although we do get a little hint of that in costume ways with, um, of course, Jack is always in his signature gray and he's no, no exception here. But I think it's interesting that they always clad the deputy, the deputy commissioner in black and white, black hmm. suit, white shirt, black and white striped tie. Huh. His world is black and white. There are no shades of gray, and Jack is only in gray. French gray. <laughs> French gray. I love your reading of this so much. No, I read way too much into costumes. No, sometimes, I mean, if I were doing costume design, there would be symbolism. Come on. Hello, <laughs> red cape, bullfighting. There is yeah, symbolism. It's symbol- yeah. It's there. It's there. Um, uh, and I said, like, as I, just to take it back to the whole, like, burlesque's metaphor, I'm doing a, this burlesque show because obviously it's canon in the world of Miss Fisher, and it's just the world is so ripe to sort of uh, put up on a burlesque stage. And it was really interesting to me because, first of all, I'm pretty sure the entire audience will be women, which people don't expect from burlesque shows, which will be great for me. Women out dressed to the nines. I'm so looking forward Every to Every time I have been to burlesque shows in the past, I mean, hello, women, I dress up, we go out, mm-hmm. and there's women in the audience. But a co-worker of mine, who I will describe as a middle-aged queer punk man, um, said to me the other day at work, he's like, "I, you know I don't really care for burlesque, but this Miss Fisher show that you're working on, I will definitely come to that. Huh. And I was like, what? And I asked him why. I was like, oh, you are my uh, focus group of one. <laughs> um, and he said it's because the costume is such an integral part of Miss Fisher experience and the sexuality and the transgression and the transgression and the titil- and the titillation mm-hmm. and the social commentary. Mm-hmm. I could go on and on. And hmm. I love that. I'm like, can I just use that for my marketing? Can I just steal oh, yeah. that? It's really good. That is the world of Miss Fisher, and that mm-hmm. is also the world of burlesque, which is why I'm enjoying the idea of putting them both together. I think your tagline should be Franny's quote that says, you should see what I can do with a garter. Yes. Ooh. Such a great. I actually wrote that down, and I'm like, should we see what she can do with a garter in that burlesque show? And I actually like wrote down who to ask, who was cast in the show, to be like, hey, along with the act that you're doing that shows us what Franny can do with weapons, can you show us what she can do with a garter? That would be so great. There's also, she also makes a reference to it right at the beginning. And I love that Jack is so used to her that he doesn't even bat bat an eye when she says, oh, you mean Le Petit Mort, the little death of ecstasy? And that just, I just cracked up so hard when she says that. That scene where she's talking about, yeah, she thinks it's autoerotic asphyxiation. I know, yeah. I know. And I don't know if you noticed that she is grabbing her silk yeah. tie that you hate. Yes. To like, her like clearly pulling it the up. voice and of I'm experience like, that here. Is so burlesque, first of all, <laughs> just like grabbing and like pulling an article of clothing to put focus on that thing and that tension while she's talking mm-hmm. about something very sexual, maybe very purposeful. The very second time I watched, I was like, oh my gosh, she's pulling on the scarf as she says that. It was so perfectly done. Your eyes yeah. so right subtle, there. but yeah. brings a lot to the scene. All I can think of is like, well, she's clearly done that before. <laughs> <laughs> Go, that Friday. Is not too surprising. Well, Friday yeah. knows about things. She's very yes, worldly. She does. She also lived in Paris, so. Yeah. Um, and uh, this is neither here nor there, but I just wanted to give a shout out to Jack's epic eye roll 
in the police station when Hugh and the the maid oh, are nattering yeah. on about the movie and the goat. Oh my god! Mrs. Did you guys Blunt? look up that movie? I totally looked up that oh, movie. Oh good. What Did is you? it? Kid Stakes was made in 1927 in Australia. <laughs> it is a black and white style, silent film based on the popular comic of Fatty Finn. Who I can bet maybe he's like little orphan Annie, hmm. but Australian. Um, it is about a great goat derby. And how he is going to enter wow. his famous goat in uh, a goat derby. And his goat gets let out by his rival, who I'm going to assume is a bully. And the whole movie is about the adventures of finding the runaway goat and then finding the goat and winning. And yes, goat racing was indeed illegal in Wallamaloo. Is that how you say it? I think I, so. Sure. Of I course it know. was. That's, that's amazing. Because, yeah, she says, oh, not that I yeah. am okay with goat. Yeah. That um, is so hilarious. That is amazing. You can find um, the movie uh, Kid Stakes on YouTube. I started watching it. Um, <laughs> I'm writing this down. And it is an hour and a half long, I believe. Wow. Um, but the first, like, few title cards start with, like, something like, at a time when everything is fast, when jobs are fast and cars are fast and lovemaking is fast. And, like, <laughs> and I'm like, what is happening? And then it goes to, like, there was one person who was the fastest of them all and cut to a child of six. <laughs> And his goat. Like, it is... Oh, uh, it's amazing. I love so good. The little, the, they sort of sne- they sneak in all these little references to real things. Yeah. And I oh, love yeah. that character of Mrs. Blunt is her mm-hmm. name. Yes. Mrs. Blunt. Uh, who is very blunt. Mm-hmm. And I love that Jack's, like, rolling his eyes. Oh, that eye like, roll Thanks is... for stopping by. Yeah. You can go Yeah, now. it's so... And he's like... Ugh. And then Collins keeps the conversation going. He's like, no. Let it be done already. I mean, talking about a goat racing is fascinating. I want to know more about goat racing. Uh, but yeah, then he, um, wow. it's that where I'm like, Jack's not doing the best of jobs on this case because <laughs> clearly there's a lot of emotions involved for yeah. him. Well, I mean, and he's missing details he left not, and right. He shouldn't be on this case, right? No. This is his former father-in-law. Yeah. And Probably so, like, not. I'm sure there's a conflict of interest there, but... The electrician, obviously a detail that they kind of set up, like all these people stopped by the house before but don't the you crime know, was committed. There's only two cops in all of Melbourne that aren't crooked. I mean, every time we see another <laughs> cop, they're crooked yeah, yeah. in some way. The circus one and the, the jerk Bobby in the hallway, and then there's, you know, yep. the deputy commissioner. Uh, so, of course, Jax needs to take that case because he's the only cop. Like, and watching this with an actual sex worker, the, her key takeaway was that she really hated all the cops. Mm. She thought it was accurate. She actually, she hated Jack. Really? She's like, I do not like Jack. Because he, even when he comes into the brothel, kind of like messes around a little bit and is like, yeah. I left my, oh, I left my, at my ID at home. No, here it is. Ha, ha, ha. Right. And she's like, he's basically just preventing the girls from working. He's just, and he even says, I'm not here for vice. I'm here for murder. And, uh, but he still kind of like mucks things up for the girls who are actually working. So she didn't like that very much. Hmm. It's like, okay, I can see that. That's point. interesting. Well, yeah, well, there's that line that you, you fellows know how to clear a room when, yeah. They, yeah. when they show and up. And they actually really do clear they a They clear room. the room. People, yeah. yeah. But Jack's a, in the grand scheme of all the dirty cops, maybe Jack sometimes doesn't use his power to the best of his ability. But. Would you, if you were in that little room with Franny? I think your mind would go blank. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. I have to give them credit for actually getting anything done at all, considering she's Honestly. usually 
there if he were him. the president of the United States, they'd just be going at it in the other room all the time. So. <laughs> oh, you're going to go home tonight, Mary, and find her oh. Miss Fisher scandal crossover fan fiction. Oh, oh, it'd be yeah. good. Wow, I hadn't even thought to look there. Okay. Holy maybe rabbit. maybe Holy in my burlesque show we'll add. No, we won't. I'm no. sorry. It's already ca- <laughs> it's already cast. Do you want to tell us more details about? Yeah, yeah. you know it's interesting. Um, I, I some burlesque shows I do are kind of narrative, meaning that they sort of tell a story, uh, and all of the acts themselves in the burlesque show are part of that story. And some burlesque shows I do are just like a review. Most burlesque shows are just all the burlesque acts themselves tell their own little story. Uh, and I had a hard time deciding if I wanted this one to be like a true murder mystery and tell some overarching narrative like it's a new episode, right? Yeah. Or if I wanted to do, uh, which is what the Burlesque Files was. It had like a cold open of a uh, burlesque performer getting abducted and then Mulder and Scully investigating what uh, Mulder thinks is alien abduction and Scully very rationally explains is totally normal to find clothes at, on a burlesque stage. Like that's totally rational. So there's like a little bit of a story there yeah. <laughs> of them investigating an actual abduction in a burlesque theater. Uh, and I was like, oh, I could tell something like that with Miss Fisher. But you know what? I just want this to be fun. I just want it to be frivolous. Um, so the concept is uh, Aunt Prudence has invited over the audience for some sort of like society event and then starts <laughs> to tell them stories about uh, her scandalous niece and all of her friends thus allowing us to have several different performers play Miss Fisher. Because it was really important to me to show kind of the idea that anyone can be a Miss Fisher. Um, So we can get performers of different ages, different body types, different races, different um, uh, gender identities even. The idea that, like, if you identify with this character, you can be this character too. Mm. Because um, I didn't, and great. also uh, every single burlesque performer I know who's watched Miss Fisher wants to be Miss Fisher. Oh, of course, and sure. it was going to be the hardest casting I had ever done <laughs> to pick just one. Just one, yeah. so I picked five. Ooh, and even that was probably very difficult. That was really hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so they all would give us different. Uh, variations on Miss Fisher, maybe a little uh, tributes to things we're seeing from the show or telling us sort of a new story or a new adventure that Miss Fisher has gotten herself into. Uh, Yes, there will be at least one Jack, maybe two, because we're going to see two different stories about Jack. Definitely a Hugh and a Dot and uh, Mac. Please, please. Oh God, Mac. yes. Okay. <laughs> um, and actually, I, I I have not shared any details publicly about this yet. Ooh. So it's like, ooh, it's an exclusive. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I think the most important thing is tell us where and when yeah. so that people in the area can go and see the show. Uh, January twenty seventh at the historic Jewel Box Theater in Seattle, Washington. Theater actually built in the late. 1920s, early 30s, I believe. Excellent. Perfect. Actually, it's quite small venue. Um, so we're doing two shows in one night. Um, and I will say, yes, Mac uh, will definitely be in the show. Um, I don't want to reveal all of my casting quite yet, but the performer is Tamara the Trapeze Lady, who's a pretty <laughs> oh. well-known Seattle burlesque performer. From the uh, Pink Door, right? From the Pink Door. She was the trapeze artist at the Pink Door, which is a bar in Seattle. 
not bar, a very fancy restaurant that has trapeze some nights above the diners. Uh, local folks go. It's great. Yeah. Um, she actually is sort of considered as one of the founders of neo-burlesque in Seattle. Um, uh, her story is she used to be a stripper with Lusty Lady and created these events called Fallen Women Follies. <laughs> um which also relates back to, I think, our Miss Fisher episode, mm-hmm. where the performers in uh, in strip clubs could show different parts of themselves that they weren't allowed to show in these more commercialized settings where huh. they were getting paid and it was their job. It was allowing them to do some sort of other performance that maybe wasn't as desired by their clients. And then that was part of the whole burlesque revival. And she will be Mac. Oh. This is going to be so good. Oh, yeah. How can I wait till January? Yeah, I know. The end of January for this. Well, so, Mary, you're my date, obviously. Uh, yes, of course. And will um, be my date? <laughs> we will have all of this information in the show notes. I think the show notes are going to be chock full of awesomeness. Oh, yeah. This one. Yeah. Yes, yeah. definitely. Kid steaks. You got to send a link. <laughs> I was like, oh, we're just making this up. Goats and naked ladies. That's what everything boils down to, really. (laughs) That is a great gimmick. (laughs) I wanted to point out the beautiful cinematography in a couple scenes. Yes, and in fact, the the lighting. The the lighting in the fan dance scene with the backlit I actually wrote that down. Yes, the backlighting. Unbelievable. And it reminds me, actually, of that. Have, Have you ever seen The Right Stuff? There, they play star. I think is the performer. Yeah, yeah there's ago. a well, but it's supposed to be Sally Rand, basically. And and the, is it Sally Rand or is it um, Tempest Storm? I think it's Sally Rand. Okay. And I don't know who plays her in the in the film, but they they perform for President Johnson, Lyndon LBJ, really? at a barbecue in Texas. Oh yeah, that and that's that actually wouldn't have been Sally Rand. I don't oh, believe. but actually, I looked it up, and apparently, Sally Rand did perform for the astronauts oh, in the 1960s. And huh. and that scene is shot almost identically, where it's backlit with this yeah. like strong spotlight. So with the feathers the way they are and the backlighting, it makes her look like an angel. Well, yeah. There's oh, this yeah. very angelic, yeah, halo aura thing going on. And oh, I yeah, love that. And idea. then with like the black wig, it's like this interesting play on that. She does some great. Uh, poses like when she gets down on the floor and kicks out her leg. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, I assume Essie Davis was trained briefly from someone who knew what they were doing because she does hit some good, very traditional uh, burlesque fan dancing poses, hmm. which does create such that, that lovely picture, right? That silhouette. And lighting is so important. Mm-hmm. And I think we forget that, especially burlesque can be done anywhere. It can be done in the back of bars. It can be done in comic shops. It can be done anywhere. <laughs> uh, but for me, lighting is so important. Oh, yeah. Lighting changes the mood. And mm-hmm. so, um, yes, I also noticed. And I and there's think a little hint of glitter at the very end. If you like, yes. oh, right. So she does the flourish and shows her, we assume, naked boobies to all of her friends, <sighs> which also very burlesque. That is my life. Uh, we see that hint of glitter uh which is also very appropriate. Yeah. And I feel like lighting also helps tell that story. It helps hide things. Like the yep. if you have high mm-hmm. contrast, you can have shadows where you want them to be to, to help that illusion along. Well, and even though we do get the goods in this episode, uh, <laughs> supposedly. It's <laughs> well, about we, we don't. We Come don't. On. It's about what's not seen. It's about the, the tease, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, which is, is way more interesting than, um, than seeing everything. Yeah. And the the other thing that I really noted the lighting was this is really random, but at the end when they have the 
the really kind of brutal shootout yes. in the warehouse. the warehouse. Yeah. That warehouse is gorgeous. It's, it's like, yeah, that's why. With like the clerestory windows and the w- whitewashed wood ceiling. I didn't want to end the, the show without talking about that scene because it is stunning. And Beautiful. the colors that they're wearing. Shot so well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This, and the fluttering money after the guy falls. It, did just, you guys have a weird reaction, though, to, I don't want to tailspin this too far, so we should cap it, is the, uh, the seeing an unarmed man getting shot in that scene. It's a little challenging. Yes. Um, Yeah, but I think it's a good foreshadowing of just how far people are willing to go. Yeah. Um, And and I love how they think it's Hugh at first, and Hugh is so stunned, Mm -hmm. and he's holding the gun, and he, like, that Just think of, like, uh, from a director's perspective, how that, all that, all of that would have to be framed, because they're all on different levels. Um, you know, there's where Jack and Franny are, there's where Hugh is, there's and that where kind the, of enclosed courtyard kind yeah, of thing. There's is really where Maury hard to shoot. is, there's where Sanderson is. Like uh kudos to the director and also kudos to the art direction. It's like everything in season one was great, but you can tell it's like Oh, they got a budget now. They got yeah. some money. I noticed that too with the the like. There's three times as many costumes in this one, mm-hmm. and then the pre- I'm like, oh, they got a proper budget now. Well, and then also, I will always admit, um, season three, I start to almost dislike it because it's like they get cocky. It's like <laughs> they know that they're a hit now, and they're like, we got some money. It's almost a little slick at times. Yeah, it gets a little too slick, which is I also relate to like when the X Files got popular and moved mm. to L. A. It's like right. now it's a little season too slick. six is dead to me. <laughs> Okay, All my DVDs we're go going through five. Web tail spinning everything, <laughs> but yeah, there's definitely. Uh, I also was the first time I noticed the set that is the police station. How well that set is art directed. Oh so yeah, out. and I love the little details like the sign that says like no spitting, no fighting, mm-hmm. and um, and the portrait kinda, of the king. Oh yeah, which is so. I think this illustrates why we pay so little attention to the actual story that's happening with the murder and we were more fascinated with the details. Well, it's funny, you know, they got the king right, so that would have been, what, George V at that point. Um, And but they got the calendar wrong. Like they, uh, you know, we've had the November calendar in season one, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's November 1927. That would make sense, judging if not if the third season is 1929. But this is January now. But I looked up the year, and that's not 1927, 28, or 29. So they've got some random January going on in the background, and I was very disappointed. <laughs> nitpicking. Cool. You're totally nitpicking. You know what? If they if they're gonna go into such great detail about like referencing the costumes and and, and and the uh, what were we just talking about? I don't about care with the, if in the show if things are the a kid off. stakes. They kid made a stakes. reference to a real film with and real kid musicians. Uh, yeah, I don't care if things are a little factually off. I just like finding out uh, if they are or not. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, yeah. it was fun for me to look up. Like, would uh, would Friday have done a fan dance in Melbourne in 1929? And the answer is probably yes. And it would have been an American import, but mm-hmm. but she is very avant garde. Yes. I mean, yeah. that is her. She's bringing, she's bringing these avant garde artists over with these paintings, and I, she's. I think you used the phrase "scandalous sensation," and that's basically on her business. That card. is, and yeah, she, she and she is like <laughs> private detective, importer of sensation. sensations. Well, like <laughs> uh, Madame Leone, I believe that she is a lady, but I am a little skeptical of the private detective. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that shot, that was another shot that I wrote down was when she asked her, that depends, how is your fan dance? She's wearing this red polka dot dress, and then she's up against that teal wall, 
And that shot is so beautiful and vibrant and bright and these complementary colors. I just mm. was I I did a screen grab of that. The palette of Miss Fisher is so rich and delightful. Oh, yeah. As opposed to uh total aside, uh my housemate is writing a play, so therefore watching all of Three's Company long story. <laughs> oh and so I watched a piece of it and I was like, this color palette is Insane. You know, the 70s it is, is so barfy. Like, yeah. all and in the family, brown. It's like, all, like, brown, so much brown and, and orange. Barf pink and, like, just <laughs> everything and, like, weird teals. And I, I uh, from a design perspective, just love those beautiful, rich blues that we get mm-hmm. and the rich reds. And, and it's gold. almost like you can feel the color, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, you can also, uh, there's a lot of very, um, like, costumes that I want to touch. Yes. Which also is very related to burlesque. The idea is performers, like, look, don't you want to touch this thing, but you can't. Oh, yeah. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. I am so hoping they bring the costume exhibit to the U.S. Can we start North America. a petition? Yeah, I would like to. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Let's we'll do that. Petition. Right. Yeah. Vancouver, um, that's fine. Yeah. yeah, yeah maybe that's, that's less Vancouver. red tape for them. I don't hey, know. Hey, it's only four hours Could for us. Could it coincide with my January 27th burlesque <gasps> show? I think so we can arrange that. So we can have some Miss Fisher tourism out here on the West Coast. I have a secret plan to um, do FrinyCon someday. Oh, yeah. I don't know how this will happen, but I'm putting it out to the universe. Okay. I want it. I, I want it to happen. And honestly, I will go anywhere I in the world. I feel like to make uh, that I can teach you the Charleston. Yay. <laughs> Excellent. I, ladies, I feel like it is my job, and I don't know if you agree, is to slowly turn the world on to Miss Fisher. Like, oh, I yeah. must do oh, it yeah. single. If I must do it single handedly, f- I will do it. I'm an evangelist. I uh, call myself a Miss Fisher vampire, where <laughs> I'm going to create my own, like, vampire family. Oh, yeah. Uh, nice. family. Army. Yeah. Yes. yes. That's the best army ever. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah. No, I. I try to spread the misfishing oh, glory spread the, everywhere I spread I go. the gospel big yep. time. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> All right, Chandler. Do well, you want to take us out with uh, now a toast? I, uh, maybe, now, maybe, Jojo, you might have some ideas here. But I, a quote that jumped out at me was when Franny said to Dot, sisters are a precious commodity. Now, I don't mm. actually have a sister. I don't Do, do either you? of you? Nope. I do. And I actually love the scene with her sister about them not really seeing eye to eye. Like, they love yeah. each other, but they don't really get each other at all. And almost all sister movies are about that, really. Like, even even White Christmas is about two sisters who hmm. have a falling out. And so, I don't know. Maybe maybe the, our toast today is to the sisterhood, the sisterhood of burlesque dancers. Yeah, I was just going to say that that really fits in nicely with things you said earlier about it's these sort of subcultures where we find... Find sisterhoods or or families. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that sounds lovely. All right. Well. All right. To the sisterhood then. To the sisterhood. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> and thank you so much. Thank you, Jojo. Jojo Stiletto, you are amazing. You are a fantastic guest, and thank you so much oh, for joining you us today. For and letting anybody- me fan out. Because I'm a fan of your podcast, too. Yeah. So. Thank you. And anybody who's in the Seattle area, please do come to the amazing Miss Fishnet Stripper Mysteries yes. burlesque show on January 27th. Yeah, there's more information on my website, jojostiletto.com. Excellent. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.